politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back to the Conservative Review podcast here at Conservative Review's Northern Command on this fine Wednesday, August the 7th, in middle of the week, in middle of a week where many of us who actually believe in liberty, we believe in security and safety and sovereignty, we are left without a political party. That's right. We do not have one. And that's why we highlight the fact that we are really one of the only independent conservative hosts around that actually care about the issues and consistently give you the truth, the unvarnished truth, on not just the perspective on what you hear about in the media, but on the issues that you don't hear about in the media. Because that is what skews public opinion. And the fact that we have a Republican Senate and a Republican administration that refuses to offer a counter narrative to what the left is putting out on their phony safety and security agenda on gun control demonstrates the problem we're in. I apologize for yesterday. I might have uh, given you the impression we were going to put out another episode. I originally intended to do so, but I was too busy, didn't have the time. So our interview with Representative Massey was Tuesday's show. Uh, That was episode 465. If you haven't seen it, that was a full hour from a congressman speaking candidly and intelligently about so many issues, a real rarity in politics. I suggest if you haven't seen it, make sure to do it. And look, I know some of you are old fashioned like me, where you like uh, listening to things only through audio, but go to our YouTube channel at Conservative Review, subscribe, um, like our videos, and and yes, that will spread the message more. The more we get this on video, the more it will spread the message. And also, as time goes on, we are going to be using more video graphics, so you're going to miss that if you only listen through audio. And if you're only listen, listening through audio, you're going to miss... This very important live shot. See, I have a live shot for you of the Republican meetings that are taking place right now in the House and the Senate on the future of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and how they are the moon and the Democrats are the sun. The Democrats say jump. They say how high. They have no agenda other than what the Democrats provide them with. So here's a live shot of what the Republicans are doing right now. Look, I mean, I thought that was pretty grotesque too, and I didn't want to post that, but I'm just telling you, I couldn't find a better way to bring out the fact that the modern-day Republican Party and phony conservative movement is the most pathetic, meek, weak, counterintuitive movement I've ever seen in my life. I've been in this business for a decade and I've never seen a time where Republicans are lacking any narrative on any issue. All they do is validate, legitimize, accentuate the Democrat narrative, albeit they do it with less of a smile on their face and more reluctance and more diffidence in their attitude. So you know what? Suburban voters, if both parties agree, Not to talk about the cartel drug crisis, the cartel crime crisis, the criminal alien crisis, the under-incarceration crisis of letting out and not incarcerating so many violent criminals that we can. 
self-defense and the right to carry to protect yourself in one of these shootings. If there's no counter narrative, if Republicans are going to say the same things as the Democrats, the president, oh, we need to guns, guns, oh, red flag laws. Then you know what? Why would anyone have any incentive to vote for the less enthusiastic, more plasticated, less authentic version of what the left is selling? They're going to vote for the real thing. But I want you guys to know for all time, it didn't have to be this way. The polls could have been very different. We've spent several years now putting together an agenda, having very special guests on this show that you're not going to hear on the major legacy cable channels, tying together crime, illegal immigration, general criminal justice, drugs, how drugs are very different nowadays and where it's coming from, tying into the terrorist nexus, into transnational gangs, and a cohesive safety and security agenda to deal with all of those things. I put out an agenda in July for Republicans to stay in the session the entire August to focus exclusively on the forgotten American taxpayer, the safety and security that we have from the border crisis, sanctuary cities, criminal aliens and gang members that aren't being deported, fixing the loopholes that the courts have created just in general, with violent criminals being let out, starting with the Johnson court decision in 2015, letting out so many people under the Armed Career Criminal Act, armed, violent gun felons being let out. They could have had a narrative on all these issues. But they went with trifecta control of government, years doing nothing. And now Democrats have seized the narrative. You know... What is amazing is that you could have 20 people killed one way and you could have thousands of people killed another way. But if one side doesn't educate the public on it and doesn't even talk about it when they have power, it doesn't make a difference. I was having frustrations this week dealing with DHS press officials. I'm working on so many cases of avoidable murders, rapes, child sex offenses, in this country, committed by illegal aliens that could have been deported, should have been deported, went through law enforcement so many times. We're not talking about, oh, maybe we could grasp at going after an inanimate object, cast, casting a wide net on constitutional rights in the hopes that somehow it will catch bad guys. We directly had the bad guys in our hands and could have, in the case of foreign nationals, deported them, removed them from the entire universe of criminality. And we didn't do it. And yet, they don't report it. They, when I asked them about it, they refused to give me any informa information. Finally, one of the guys on the phone, I just said, you know, if you had 100 illegals tomorrow come over the border and rape 100 Americans, you guys at DHS wouldn't even put out a press release on it. And you know what? This shapes the policies, the panoply of what stories are put on the table, put out to the American people, immutably shapes the stories and the mindset of the political landscape and the voters. And that's what the politicians respond to. I find this utterly astounding, but I want to talk to you about 
in my mind, what's probably the most astounding case that nobody knows about. I like to, I mean, I wish I could take an informal poll. This is one of the most educated audiences around, conservative, liberal, or otherwise. You guys are very clued in. A lot of you have helped me with cases. Your emails are tremendously helpful in trying to flag some of these cases that are missed by the political class that are so important that there's no voice for, no one's talking about them. But the, this is the biggest case that I have ever seen missed. And I, I yelled at a top-level official today for not getting on this. You know, we're talking about mass murder in Texas. And the Democrats are now using that to try to paint Texas blue. They're using that to win back suburban voters. We have a Republican Party that has betrayed us on every single issue imaginable. There's not a dime's worth of difference between the parties on abortion. It's all rhetoric. In actuality, they're not doing anything about it. Not a dime's worth of difference between them on judicial supremacy. Not a dime's worth of difference between them on marriage and values. Not a dime's worth of difference between them on spending and debt and healthcare and market distortions and government interventions. Not a dime's worth of difference between them on debt and budget. They gave them everything imaginable two weeks ago. I thought when I started the video program, our first show, when I told you it was worse than we could imagine having Republicans just give everything away, not fight through the August recess. Well, now we found something worse. The one issue where Republicans legitimately moved the ball forward this generation and held the line on was self-defense, the Second Amendment, and crime. And that is why gun ownership has skyrocketed. And that's why over the same period, we have actualized what is probably the best public policy outcome in modern history, the plummeting of violent crime in this country from 1993 until fairly recently, when thanks to the reversal of these policies, which we're going to talk about, that trend has completely reversed. That trend has completely reversed. So Republicans held the line on that. Well, now Republicans are planning not to come back and focus on all the aforementioned issues. Locking up more violent criminals, locking up gun felons. Slamming the Democrat Party as the party of Willie Horton. No, they're embracing Willie Horton. Criminal justice reform, Jared Kushner. What a schmuck that guy is. That's what they've spent the last year doing. Giving the Democrats a loincloth rather than running constant ads on them. And that would have built up such a cachet of trust with suburban voters who care about safety and security, all voters. Instead, they stood silent. They didn't throw any piece of ammo they had on any of these issues. And now, Mitch McConnell's like, yes, we need to immediately deal with this. The border crisis has been going on for 15 months and they won't have a single piece of legislation. Nothing. They won't hold a single press conference, a single messaging, you know, offensive against the Democrats. Nothing on sanctuary cities. Nothing on designated MS-13 and the cartels as terrorists. Nothing on fixing these radical court rulings that allow all these people to come out, these armed career criminals, armed 
You want to talk about jujitsu and gun violence? How about you go after the gun felons, the people that have been known to commit crimes with guns are being let out? Uh, we lock people up for too long. We don't hold them accountable for it. But alas, we have this case. In Texas, in the state of Texas, what if I told you folks that a guy committed mass murder in the most heinous way, at least 19 people, and it's likely more than that, but roughly as much as the people that died in the El Paso shooting, took 90-year-olds, mainly 80 people in their 80s and 90s, mainly women, took a pillow and smothered them and stole their, in order to steal their jewelry. People that lived in the World War II generations survived all sorts of trials and tribula tribulations, lived a long life, and they died by a guy that 100, 1,000% five times over could have been stopped. Not a policy in general of maybe we're going to regulate pillows so he couldn't do it. No, 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 no. The man himself, the perpetrator himself, not, not infringing on broad constitutional rights of peaceful people, the man himself was not only a guy that was known to law enforcement and had a long rap sheet, but he was an illegal alien who should have never been able to stay in this country and for whom we had multiple subsequent opportunities several years before he committed these murders to get rid of the guy, to completely remove him from the country so we never have to worry about him. Only if the current laws would have been enforced and if Congress would work on closing any of these loopholes created by the courts by a lack of enforcement to at least take the people known criminals of other countries, the most redressable public safety concern imaginable. Nothing. This is from the Star-Telegram. Just to give you, this is a little old, but I just want to give you a sense of this guy. It's from uh, two weeks ago. This guy, Billy Chemimer, Kenyan National. How many people in the country have ever heard of him? And this just happened. I mean, the murders happened over the course of three years or so. But the trial is now. He's being indicted. A suspected serial killer was able to kill at least nine people in a Dallas retirement home. And again, it's up to 19 now. But this was in this one retirement home because the facility failed to keep residents safe and withheld information from the police. With the latest lawsuit, Billy Chemmer has now been accused of killing 19 people across the DFW area. He was first accused of killing an 81-year-old woman in Dallas last year and was indicted on 11 additional capital murder charges in Dallas and Collin counties in May. Chemmer also is charged with attempting to kill two other women in Frisco and Plano. Seven other deaths have been linked to Chemmer in lawsuits. And basically... What this guy would do for over a year, Chemmer repeatedly accessed premises to murder and rob at least nine elder, elder, elderly residents in broad daylight. Um, you know, he would come in. And here's just a quick timeline. July 20th, 2016, Joyce Abramowitz was found dead in her apartment at the Tradition. That was the name of the uh, 
assisted living home. And um, I could go on and on. August 19, 2016, Leah Corkin was found face down on her floor, dead. Um, Margaret White, Solomon Spring, that was a male. Norma French, all these people. Doris Gleason, Doris Wasserman, you'll never hear of these people. Over the course of 2016, 2017, one of them was in 2018. And basically, they say he smothered most of his victims with pillows before stealing jewelry and other valuables from their rooms. He posed as a maintenance worker or caregiver at numerous facilities, such as the tradition Prestonwood and um, Edgemere Senior Living Centers in Dallas, according to police and lawsuits. Now, the, the, the Dallas Morning News and the Star-Telegram, a couple of local papers are the only ones who are really dealing with this. And even then, they're focusing mainly on the assisted living. And, and that might be true that they were criminally negligent. I don't know. But, but what's more important to broad public policy is this. This is from the Daily Caller in May. See, no one even talked about it. I, even I was kind of del um, del del in, in really um, going after this. But they talk about that this guy had a massive arrest record. So ICE initially filed a detainer on him in March 2018 when he was first charged with murder. And then now he's been indicted on all these counts. Just happened. But this guy had an extensive criminal history in North Texas prior to his March 2018 arrest, including 180 days in jail and a fine of 1,250 in June 2011 for driving while intoxicated in Addison, as well as 70 days in jail for another DWI charge in Dallas several months later. Records also include 2012 arrests for domestic assault and arrest for criminal trespassing and failing to identify himself. Now, I um, here's the deal. Um, Chimmer's girlfriend told Dallas police he had come back drunk from a strip club and to argued. She later went to bed and tried to go to sleep, but Chimmer came into the room, began punching her. Um, he then grabbed a small pot and hit her in the back of the head. He kicked her in the back. Um, and Basically, he posted bail and never served time in jail. Why is this important? Th th this is going to go down. Well, it's not because nobody knows about it. But this should be one of the most heinous, notorious mass murders in American history. And police, by the way, are looking and they're asking around for other cases because remember, a whole bunch of people died in their 90s and you know i know a lot of people that were in their 90s and they just didn't wake up i mean it was it was their time and god took them there were no signs of any problem so this guy smothered them and it, it wasn't very apparent how they died so a lot of people thought it was natural and they really wonder you know that it keeps the death toll from this chemimer guy keeps going up it could be 25 it could be 30 who knows but this is the most notorious thing don't we want to tear our hair out do something how could this have been stopped? I'll tell you how it could have been stopped, buddy. This man came in 2003 on a, on a B-2 visa. It's a tourist visa. He lied like a bunch of them, overstood his visa. He's an illegal alien. We were promised in 2006, in, in 1996, 
unanimous vote of the Senate signed by Bill Clinton to have an exit entry visa tracking system that could have vetted this out. Never been implemented. No alacrity from Republicans to get this up going. But let's go further. A few years later, he, he wound up finagling himself into status like so many of these illegals. We don't enforce the law and we gave him a visa because he married an American citizen. That shouldn't matter. Or you get a visa if you marry a citizen, but that's only if you're here lawfully. If you broke the law by remaining here after your visa, you're, you should be disqualified. You should be deported. But he was given it. So he was given a green card. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, once he was given a green card, we couldn't deport him. But that here's the deal. In 2011, 2012, this man served time in prison with his status as an alien. And then he was arrested for assault resulting in bodily injury, which is a deportable offense even for a legal immigrant, was never deported. And the murders allegedly occurred from 2016 to 2018. This man could have easily been out of the country. And unlike a lot of Mexicans, because we don't have border security, that even when we do deport them, a lot of them could come back. This guy would have, he's a Kenyan, he would have been deported back to Kenya, would have been much less likely he would have come back. No press release from DHS, no White House statement, no conservative media, no one in Congress. Mitch McConnell is not causing a, calling for a task force. And this was 100% avoidable with the foundational sovereignty laws we have. And then also, if you want to tighten up the laws, which we should, because this is a big problem we've highlighted here over the number of weeks is that a lot of really bad people drive drunk. That's often the prelude to it. With a lot of murderers, rapists, you see on their record, DWI, DUI. So the assault was deportable for someone with a green card. Um, the D DUIs are not. I don't think so, at least, unless in Texas a repeat offender might make him a felon but I don't think it's a year in prison so that it wouldn't trip it. Where is the legislation? It's called the old Scott Gardner bill uh, proposed by former representative Sue Myrick of North Carolina, named after someone killed by a repeat drunk driver, mandating ICE apprehend and deport even a legal immigrant who's not a citizen, obviously, who has a repeat drunk driving offense. You want to talk about suburban moms, drunk driving? Are you kidding me? The rash of drunk driving and sex, offended, uh, sex offenses, child molesting from illegal aliens. I'm practic practically the only one talking about it. This is the narrative we do not hear from the Teletubbies in the Republican Party. These people are the most pathetic human beings imaginable and i could go on and on and on all these cases i mean there's 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 tons of them and again as a result of a lack of border security this is what they need to say guess who's coming back in all the people we do deport so this was put out by, uh, by Border Patrol a couple days ago. Some of you might have seen this. This guy from New Jersey, forgetting his name here, trying to find it here. But uh, his name was Aguilar. 
And he was a Guatemalan national. He was charged with child, child molestation last October. And he was deported just three months ago from New Jersey, Cumberland County, New, Jer New Jersey. He was caught at the border in Tucson this week. A guy who was just deported for sex offenses three months ago. These are the people that Border Patrol are dealing with. And you can imagine how many did they not catch because the stupid Republican Party has joined the Democrats in their narrative that it's all about humanitarian, that we no longer have Border Patrol anymore. We have diaper patrol. And as I wrote yesterday in my article, guess what? They can get overtime for diaper patrol, border agents that is, but not for border patrol. This is their job. Why is nobody talking about this? So that was that case. I could go on and on. There's another case this week. And guys, you could see, keep sending them to me. I'm just, this is just a fraction of them in my stack. Saginaw, Michigan. A man faces a life offense after prosecutors in Saginaw County allege he sexually assaulted an 11-year-old girl. Alberto L. Perez, 39, had assaulted her earlier that day in Saginaw. Um, a native of Mexico, Perez, was detained by ICE on July 29th. There are there's so much of this going on. Another one in Ogden. This is a, a, a Utah case. Ogden, Utah. Another avoidable harm to a child that didn't have to happen. We got here. Where is this? So this is Ogden, Utah. Men on the run from ICE for almost a decade, was arrested for raping a child over several years in Ogden. Giovanni Castro started sexually assaulting this girl um, in 2008 when she was five, year five years old. Jeez. It was over a seven-year period. Castro has been charged with two counts of sodomy upon a child, first-degree felony, and sex abuse of a child, second-degree felony. Um. But here's the story. Back in August 2010, Castro was ordered by a federal judge to be deported after failing to appear before an immigration judge. But law enforcement say Castro never went back to El Salvador. You know what that means? He was probably let out on bond. Could have all been avoided. And again, as I noted, for all these schmucks in the Republican Party, they're like, oh my gosh, we can't talk about uh, criminal aliens because... um." The El Paso shooter said he didn't like illegal, so he can't talk. Folks, the people this harms the most are Hispanics. I don't have the proof here because they're certainly not going to give out the name of the victim. But almost always, if it's a seven-year relationship, where the it's usually going to be someone connected to them living there. It's usually going to be an immigrant. They are the most often affected. Almost all the sex offenses, but but a lot of the crimes as well. They are the first ones. It's in their communities that we now have, according to prosecutors who are dealing with MS-13, that these children coming over the border are flowing into MS-13 and they have to act more violent to show their moxie to get accepted. It's harming Hispanic communities in Fairfax, Virginia, in PG County, Maryland, in Long Island, um, New York, in, in New Jersey, all sorts of places like San Fernando, um, 
California. It's all over the place. Where's the task force? Where are any of the 15, 20 things we talk about? Where's the alacrity from Republicans to deal with this? Where is their counter narrative to the left? And this is 100% avoidable. That's the key. Go after the bad people, not the objects. This Chemimer guy could have 100% been avoidable. What are we going to do? Get rid of pillows? He killed them with pillows. You know, you, know, you know what it's like doing? It's like you have a rash of rapes going on. And then they say, you know what? We're going to make all men cut off their you-know-whats. And then we're going to let the actual rapists out of jail. Flood our country with MS-13. Flood our country with cartels having operational control over our border. Tens of thousands dying from drugs. Gangs where immigrants have to live in communities in our own country pay ransom to MS-13 in places like Prince George's County, Maryland, where their schools are just overrun with violence. Endless criminal aliens. Two million plus criminal aliens as of 2013 before any of the Central Americans came. Who knows how much it is now? remaining in this country when we could 100% get rid of them. What if I told you there are 2 million criminals, not only could I prevent their crimes, I could remove them from the country. That's the beauty of immigration law. Nothing. I got nothing for you folks. See, when you believe in things and you understand things and you research things, you're not scared of the left and their freaking narrative. You push back against it. But what do we have? We have a bunch of Teletubbies. I'm going to tell you a story that embodies where we are with Republicans now. So they're, they're going on all sorts of trips now because they're off in August. There was a group of them that went down to the border in Texas to, tr to try to tour the border. And they were going to have some sort of press event talking about what was going on this week. and. Uh, they went down, and they were offered by some folks that I know, and it was late at night, to go down to the river late at night. And the guy just said, look, you know, I can't guarantee your safety, but, you know, it's, it's a good, it will be a good experience for you. And one by one, they backed out. They were too scared. They were too scared to go down there. And one of them sent his female staffer in, instead of him and my friend who's a border agent who was who was there he called me up and he said daniel now i know what you mean when you talk about republicans and especially allegedly conservative ones conservative inc being the most pathetic human beings in the history of the universe while democrats will fight like ms-13 for their cause our guys are like, I'm scared to go to Wivel. Send a female. I mean, the guy was like, because this guy was a military guy too. He's like, man, where I come from, this guy's not even a man. This is what we have supposedly representing our side in Washington. And then the next day, guess what? They canceled their press event. Oh, we can't talk about the border after what happened in El Paso. They should have held a press conference and all the stuff we're talking about, including Billy Chemimer. May his name rot in hell. 
Not a single person anywhere is holding any press conference on that. What is wrong with these people? That's why the left wins. All the time, every time. I could go on and on with these cases. And speaking of Utah, by the way, there's um, you know, there's the case of that college girl who was killed by this Nigerian who also originally was illegal and finagled himself into status. Very similar story. No one talks about that. Heinous death. No one wants to talk about it. There was also a Nigerian who actually did a similar thing to Billy Chemimer in a Washington state old age home um, the suspecting of, kill, of killing someone. Now that guy was a legal immigrant, but no one talks about this stuff. Mackenzie Lewick, you're never going to hear her name. She was allegedly killed by Ayula Ajayi. This man who, um, who should have been deported. <sighs> Do something. Do something. Pass something. This is the biggest something we can do. There's a lot more going on the border I didn't get to. But I want to I want to touch on one other issue for a moment. Just taking a drink here, overusing my voice. I'm sorry about that. I just, you know, I got to let it out of me somehow. It's therapeutic. Um Another thing I've noticed from my observations of watching these attacks. Republicans have a perfect opportunity to win on another major issue, and that is capital punishment. We do not do capital punishment anymore in this country. We don't. There have been 780 or so thousand, nearly more than three quarters of a million homicides in this country since 1976 when the death penalty was reinstated. Yet only... 1,500 have been executed, and it was mainly in the 90s. Now it's going down. We barely do it anymore. And the ones we do do it, it takes 20 to 30 years. The average time was about six years in the 80s. It was several days after conviction during the time of our founding. It's a joke now. See, they want to take away the due process we do have, and then they add on years worth of due process our founders never gave them. And I said very clearly, I have a way to solve so much crime in this country. But the hardest thing are these first-time mass shooters, psychotic people, no paper trail of them. They come out in a free country. There's a limit to what we can do to stop these people. But I had a theory. I said, you know, they want to talk about white supremacism. And I wanted to tell you guys, the white supremacists are actually the easiest to deter with the death penalty. What I've noticed is that every single major mass attack committed by a white supremacist or a um, a neo-Nazi recently, all the big ones, they surrendered themselves and often in, in a cowardly way. None of them fought to the death or took their own lives. See, those people you say, like an Islamist, they want to die. You're not going to deter them with the death penalty, and usually they're going to kill themselves anyway. 
These people, despite their bravado, clearly don't want to die. And yet, they never get executed. It takes years. So what I did yesterday is I, I have this out in an article we'll link to in show notes. I put together the last six or so, seven or so major, um, the top neo-Nazi attacks. Every one of them, they gave themselves up. 1999, LA Jewish Community Center, Buford Furo, wounded five in the lobby of the LA Jewish Community Center, and he later killed a mail carrier on, on his way out. He fled the state, but then he eventually walked right into the Las Vegas FBI office and gave himself up. He entered a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty. Very interesting. 2009, shooting at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. June 10th, 2009, notorious white supremacist James Wenneker von Braun opened fire at the D.C. Holocaust Museum. He killed a police officer. He was captured alive and was wounded. Because of his poor health, he eventually died. But again, he was captured alive. 2014, Overland Park Jewish Community Center. Klansman, um, 73-year-old Fraser, Fraser Glenn Miller, this was five years ago, killed three people outside the JCC in Kansas City. He was captured alive by police again. He was sentenced to death, but four years later, there's no date in sight that he's going to be executed. He'll probably die of old age before that. 2015, Charleston, the church shooting, the African-American church, Dylan Roof came in there, shot up nine people. He was unceremoniously caught at a traffic stop the next day. He was sentenced to death initially in 2017, but then the lawyers found the thing. Dylan Roof is not going to be executed. He's in his young 20s. We're going to have to, we're going to feed this guy and give him medical care for years to come. The Pittsburgh shooter. Despite his bravado, he killed 11 people, injured seven in what became the um, worst attack on Jews in America. Gregory Bowers, he was wounded during a shootout with local SWAT team, but eventually he crawled out of his hiding place and surrendered rather than taking his own life. Who knows how long it will take? I mean, this happened when? October 27, 2018. It's incontrovertible evidence. Why isn't he executed right now? The, the trial should have been right away. There's no reason for this. 2019, this is just a couple months ago, Poway Synagogue shooting in San Diego. 19-year-old John T. Ernest. Man, this guy was a real uh, piece of work. Not only did this guy run away, so this Navy veteran was in the synagogue and chased him out. He ran away. Later on, the guy you know, came out and um, just surrendered himself with his hands up to the cops. The guy will grow old in jail. Who knows what's going to happen there? And he only killed one person. So Republicans need to get on this. And then finally, there's the El Paso guy. That guy came in with ear protection. What, mur what suicidal guy wants to do that? He said he wanted to die, but he came in with ear protection. And then he waited out in the parking lot in his van. And then he came out with his hands up to the police. Don't tell me that if they were put, if they, if they were publicly hanged, 
within a few months that it wouldn't be a deterrent. Don't you dare tell me that. Of course it would be a deterrent. Of course it would be. And it's not just because they don't want to die. It's more than that. It speaks directly to the guts and glory that they're trying to bring out. Because they want us all talking about how their carnage, how many people they killed, the imagery of, like Congressman Massey said on my show yesterday, how many people are lying in a pool of blood. It's glorious to these people, and it feeds on itself. The copycat mentality. What if every one of these people within a few weeks or at least a few months would be publicly hanged? You show me the glory of wanting that. Even if they wouldn't care about dying, it would totally let the air out of it. Certainly with the white supremacists in particular, as evil and hateful as they are, they're not as psychotic as some of these others. And they're not willing to take their own lives. They don't necessarily want to die. And I think that's a very important pattern no one else is talking about. That's another narrative Republicans won't talk about. You have that and you have concealed carry where people could just gun the guy down at any moment. And we have pictures of the guy in a pool of blood. Come back to me. We're not going to stop every one of these things. Come back to me. Finally, friends, I want to get one thing off my chest today. I want to close with something special that's very near and dear to my heart. And it's a new topic, but it's really very connected to the whole thesis today. It's connected to the thesis in terms of terrible tragedies and death that could be avoidable. It's connected in terms of the fact that some of the worst things that happen that cause human death that are totally resulting from bad public policy, not just societal problems, bad public policy are not even put out in the public domain. We don't even have a viable political movement putting this out. What do I mean? Yesterday, August 6, 2019, was a grim anniversary, very grim anniversary that almost nobody on the internet marked. I, some of you might have seen it on my Twitter feed at RM Conservative. Eight years ago, August 6, 2011, just six weeks after SEAL, SEAL Team 6, known as DevGuru, had its ultimate triumph in taking down Osama bin Laden. Everyone in the country knows about that. Almost nobody in the country knows about what happened with SEAL Team 6 six weeks later that in my mind still reverberates today on so many different levels in terms of public policy questions. But on that day, it was the single greatest loss of life in the Afghanistan war, which has been going on for 18 years, and the single biggest loss of life in the history of naval special warfare. I mean, this marks up there in in the disaster of a century, and few people know about it. 30 Americans lost their lives in a Chinook helicopter shot out of the sky that had 17 Navy SEALs on board, including main, most of them from the Gold Squadron of SEAL Team 6, the elite of the elite, Tier 1, entire squadron wiped out. Ha- also had um, several other special operation aviators, um, PJs, the uh, rescuers who are also 
special ops and a couple of uh, other soldiers, as well as to this day, eight unidentified Afghani soldiers aboard that were swapped out the last minute on the masthead of that operation against all protocol. Basically, and I've been meaning to go through this for a long time, several years ago. I have some notes in front of me where I start to delve into this, but I just never had time. And I really wanted to do a special show. This deserves its own show. And I hope to do this one day. I wanted to have Billy and Karen Vaughn on. Their son, Aaron Vaughn, was one of the SEALs who was killed. I just want to briefly do an overview here, not really do it justice, but I'm just shocked at how almost nobody knows this even happened. So even if nothing would have went wrong and there was no foul play and no malfeasance on the part of our government, military command, it's just shocking that so few people know about this tragedy. And I think it's important we we mark that. Um, but But the thing about this is, I have never seen a military operation like this in my entire life where the entire premise of what they were doing made no sense. It defied everything the SEAL teams do. The helicopter they chose, an old Vietnam-era Chinook helicopter instead of a special operations helicopter, is incomprehensible. What happened at the time with the rules of engagement, how this could have been avoided and those people that fired the RPG fire at them could have been taken out. And the cover-ups afterwards were just bizarre. Real briefly, what happened there on that day on August 6th is um, a team of rangers was conducting a pretty routine operation. They were going to to get this guy, Karir Tahir, mid-level Taliban guy in the Wurduk province, Tanji Valley, eastern Afghanistan. And they were they were pretty much done. They were just mopping up the remainder. There were at least two people that remained. And they called in air support. They just wanted some airstrikes. And to this day, and, and maybe some of you have the answers. I don't understand it. They all of a sudden, helter-skelter, called in an entire gold squadron of Tier 1 SEALs with some other special operators, some other soldiers, packed in 30 guys plus eight Afghanis. And that's very mysterious to this day. We don't have autopsies. We don't have anything um, on that plane. Got them in there. Why? Why you? What they were doing? They called in airstrikes. I mean, this is more like to capture Osama bin Laden. I mean, what? What are you having tier, tier one guys on this thing? So many of them. They didn't fly in a special operations helicopter, which is flied by the the. Um, it's flown by the Night Stalkers. And it's it's designed to really evade detection. It was a re- regular Chinook helicopter from the Vietnam War era. It was coming in, and it just nothing makes any sense. The the military says it was a lucky shot. Nothing more, just a terrible tragedy. The, the problem is we've had that. We had that in in if you watch the movie or read the book Roberts Ridge. 2005 Operation Red Wings. That made sense. There were three SEALs in trouble on a hill. It was very bad. There was something imminent. They called them in and they shot down the helicopter. That happened a few times before, but they were in a special operations helicopter. 
Here, what they were doing didn't make sense. Why they were flying in that didn't make sense. Nothing afterwards makes sense. The anomalies surrounding the crash itself, the personnel on board, the details and the recovery thereafter, just put together a prima facie problem. Military said bodies were unidentifiable because they were burned up in the crash. They even have a grave at Arlington for unknown remains. But then how did they say they then performed autopsies? Charlie Strange, one of the parents, had his son, saw he saw a picture, it was fully intact. Jason Chaffetz, who was the chairman of the House Oversight Committee at the time, said that he saw a body and it did not, um, and, and, and it was totally identifiable. Yet they cremated them afterwards without asking the families, which is a big no-no. You would never do that. Some say bullets were found in the bodies. Pathfinders found, the pathfinders that came afterwards on the scene, they found eight bodies were thrown out of the plane and were, identifi- were identified. Pathfinders say they, there was a black box and they were looking for it, but couldn't find it. But the commander testified before Congress. There was just one very weak hearing at the time that there were no black boxes on board. I don't know what to do with that. You know, and I I don't have theories. I'm just, you know, these are questions. There's about a hundred different questions. But here's what we do know. A little bit more than two years ago, this is the last real breakthrough on the case. And I don't know, to my knowledge, of anything that came up before then. But God bless her, Sarah Carter. She used to have a media outlet called Circa. Um, now that that has shut down, she still does very good work, very good investigative journalism. She got in touch with a retired Air Force captain named Joni Merkez. And Joni was the person flying the AC-130 in the sky at that moment that had full view with infrared imagery of bodies, enemy, you know, friendly, of they were serving, they were flying overhead. Now, we have eye-in-the-sky drones that have feed going to CENCOM. For whatever reason, that was turned off, and they didn't know about it. But the AC-130 in the field did know about it. Now, the government says, look, you know, we made a mistake, um, and they, they just, the two remaining fighters there got a lucky shot. Folks, Sarah Carter interviewed Joni and then also got the document that became unclassified of the other crew members backing up her story. That this wasn't a spontaneous lucky shot. Clearly, they knew they were coming. They prepared to get more people in. And most importantly, the AC-130, Joni and her team said, there are enemies in there. We have Extortion 17, that was the name of the flight, the helicopter carrying these seals flying in. Either give us permission to engage or turn them back. And they were adamant, no, you do not have permission to take them out, even though they saw them bringing in RPG fire, nor should they turn back. I want you to listen to this clip from a little bit more than two years ago, Sarah Carter, Carter interviewing that very pilot there in the AC-130. Take a listen. Marquez's story changes everything Americans know about that ill-fated mission and what happened with Extortion 17. 
Army Rangers and had called in for an air weapons team. Marquez said the assault helicopters killed six enemy fighters, but two had managed to survive. The Rangers were out of danger, but Extortion 17 was still en route. The official Pentagon memo says the two fighters disappeared into a grove of trees and were never located. Marquez disputes that. They were lying about it to the families, covering up what actually happened. Monitoring the night surveillance cameras, Marquez and her crew watched as the two surviving Taliban fighters crawled away in an open field, rounding up more insurgents in a nearby village. Later, the crew watched as cylindrical objects, believed to be RPGs, were moved by the Taliban near the area where Extortion 17 attempted to land. It's just one of those things where you know that it could have all been prevented. Rules of engagement, changed under the Obama administration to prevent civilian casualties, kept them from firing against suspected targets without permission. Marquez says she and her team begged the command several times for permission to engage the enemy or turn back Extortion 17 in a drama that played out for precious minutes. We knew right then that they weren't trying to listen to us. U.S. Central Command did not comment when asked by Circa about Marquez's account. Joni's story conflicted with the final military finding, but a recently declassified military interview conducted with her crew in Afghanistan supports her account of what happened to Extortion 17. Marquez's aircrew told investigators the two escaped insurgents and others were in their line of sight. Six to eight personnel were running around the compounds to gather enemy reinforcements. Marquez's gunship was denied the chance to take out the Taliban, all but sealing the fate of those aboard Extortion 17. Now you can listen to the full clip there. Um, we'll link to in show notes. Kudos to Sarah Carter and her team. Thank you for covering this. And I'm going to try to go over this, you know, at a, at a future date in more detail. But there you have it. That's a big deal. To this day, I never heard a response to that over two years later. Because now that we know there were Afghanis on there and they were swapped out, and it's a mystery who they were, now that we know that the whole mission kind of didn't make sense, now that we know they were flying on a Chinook that made no sense, now that we know, according to Joni, they were waiting for them and we knew about it and we could have taken them out, and then the cover-up afterwards, I don't know. But to me, this I, I felt a need to mark this grim anniversary, number one, the eighth anniversary. And number two, this reverberates to this day. We give our best soldiers no mission, no defined mission. We don't have any regard for their lives. The rules of engagement. I know Trump has made some strides in that, but they're still terrible. Nobody's held accountable for this stuff. And instead, everyone's focused now, oh, there's a cultural problem in the SEALs. They're broken, sex, drugs, drinking. What about the suicides that no one wants to talk about? Because they've been under such enormous stress at special operations intensity for eight years, albeit doing regular style deployments for 18 years, holding entire countries together like a conventional army while also doing special operation missions in 
areas that we shouldn't even be there. They should be at our border. There are so many lessons to learn. And then also the Afghanis that we trusted. I'm not saying I could prove that this was a green on blue attack that they gave them up, but it sure looks like it. Just yesterday, I don't have time to get into this, but my buddy Todd Benzman at the Center for Immigration Studies, another Afghani interpreter that we let into the country, we let in about 150,000 Afghanis, was caught smuggling in Middle Easterners at the border. We'll talk about this maybe with Todd. We'll have him on the show later this week. That's a big deal, folks. That reverberates to this day. We work with people we shouldn't work with. We have rules of engagement we shouldn't have. We, have, we, we, we put our special operators under stress they shouldn't be under. Ill-defined missions. And that's looking at this charitably. Let's, let's just say that. So God bless the memory of these 30 Americans who died. We need answers for the families, not just for them, but I'm telling you, this reverberates to this day on so many levels. But ultimately, tying back to the beginning of the show, this is yet another example of some of the worst losses of lives of our bravest heroes that goes unreported. Probably 1% of 1% of 1% in this country ever even heard of this. And it was the greatest loss of life in special ops history. Joe Biden is running for president. He was vice president at the time. He was, he was the one who outed SEAL Team 6 and was bragging about them. Again, I'm not saying we have evidence that necessarily that caused this, but something to look into. Email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. This is the type of story we're going to be on. We're going to give you the independent perspective of the forgotten Americans that merely want to be kept safe. They don't want to be infringed upon by you know, unconstitutional edicts. They don't want to be stripped of their guns. They want government to do its job with terrorism, properly defining our foreign policy and military intervention, border sanctuary cities, locking up the bad people, and leaving those of us who are peaceful the hell alone with our life, liberty, property, and the right to defend those unalienable rights. Thank you for listening. Till tomorrow, this has been another episode of the Conservative Review Podcast. 